Welcome to the Voices of Wall Street podcast, a show bringing fresh insights about the stock market, economy, and the most innovative companies from the sharpest people in the world of business and finance. I'm Dion Rabowin. In this episode, we're zooming in on policy. We spoke to Jarrett Seberg, financial services and housing policy analyst for Cowan Washington Research Group, about the market's muted reaction to President Trump's COVID-19 diagnosis, key policy initiatives that could result from a Biden or Trump victory, and how these changes could impact the wealth gap and financial inclusion. Seberg also talked about Jerome Powell nearing the end of his term as Fed chairman and speculated on who will take his place, even though Seberg says Powell has been the MVP of the economy. Here's my conversation with Jared. Jared, it is so great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us today. Happy to be with you. Let's talk some policy. <laughs> Let's talk some policy. We we gotta. There's gotta be like a sexier, cooler way to to get the kids on the TikToks and the Instagrams to want to listen to the show than let's talk some policy. You know, was, I've been trying for 20 years to figure out what that answer is, and I have no idea. So, uh, <laughs> you know, if you can if you can solve that, then I'll be in your debt. Let's make vi- let's make policy go viral, Jared. I love it. I love there it. it. Is. Maybe there it is. maybe we can we can you know turn this into a song. We can have our a modern right? version of Hamilton. We'll we'll auto tune it. It'll be dope. The kids will be all over it. We'll dope. get a, you and me. We'll, you and me will be on TikTok. Um, so listen, the question that I I have addressed um, on Monday and really on Friday on Twitter, and I, I got into it in my newsletter on Monday, and I am just a guy uh, who writes stuff, but you actually, you study and you follow this. I'm curious to get your thoughts on really the lack of a response by the markets and not just the stock markets, um, bonds, currencies, you saw a pretty significant reaction from oil uh, when this news about the president getting coronavirus hit, but we haven't seen a significant reaction to this news about President Trump being diagnosed with COVID-19. Why do you think that is? I think there's a couple of factors going on here. One, uh, you know, people have actually seen the president several times. He did do a video. He did his highly controversial drive-by yesterday. Um, And so the view is the president's getting the best medical care possible. Um, He started tweeting again. And so I think uh, while inside the Beltway, there's tremendous speculation about his actual health, I think outside of Washington, people are seeing these signals and assuming that uh, you know, he's avoided the worst and things are going to get better. Um, and, you know, frankly, we're also close to an election. And I think the markets already in, in some ways is assuming that Biden has the upper hand in that in that win. And mm. so um, there's less of a need to react if, uh, you know, something were to happen and, and Trump were half uh, were to give up the presidency and Mike Pence were have to take over. Um, you know, I just think everyone's saying, all right, we're so close to the election that, you know, nothing's not going to make much of a difference. Okay. Well, let me ask you about that too, because, you know, this orthodoxy is Trump is good for the markets, the markets like his deregulation, low taxes, um, that the markets want to see continuation, uh, don't like uncertainty. 
all of those things. And yet, even as Biden has really climbed in the polls and started to build a pretty significant lead, and even more, I think, since the debate and even more since this diagnosis of coronavirus for the president, markets don't seem to respond or react to that either. I mean, why would that be considering we've got this narrative that the market likes President Trump and the market likes Republican leadership? So that's a great question. And it really goes to the heart of, um, you know, the market being forward looking and not backwards looking. So Donald Trump gave us a cut to the corporate tax rate. I think the business community and the market uh, appreciated that. Um, But, you know, he also brings with him macro instability. We have trade fights going on all the time. We have the use of tariffs in a way that we haven't seen in generations. Right, right. Um, And just a a more toxic political environment. And that's bad for business. And so I think the market weighs the the two against each other and says, we're not going to get more tax cuts, but we are going to get more chaos. And I I think that helps explain it. But the thing I would push back on you there with is there's not a lot of expectation that a President Biden is going to unwind the trade war with China. uh, But there is expectation that a President Biden would increase capital gains taxes, increase business taxes, and ultimately increase taxes on most Americans. And isn't that then going to eat into these returns? Sure. So... Uh, you know, I, I don't think anyone expects trade tensions to disappear with Biden. What I think the market is expecting is to have more traditional approach to trade, a more multilateral approach, and one that's more predictable. And if the environment is more predictable and there's fewer surprises, it's a lot easier to make these large capital investments that companies need to need to do to stay um, mm. vibrant. Right. And I think that's that's what folks see. They understand that taxes might go up a bit, but they'll get a more stable environment to plan. Okay. Yeah, that, that certainly makes sense. Planning is good. Uh, that was certainly a lot of what we got early in Trump's tenure was, you know, market worries about Trump's tweet by diplomacy style. But that clearly hasn't had much of an uh, impact so far this year. Um, I want to turn a little bit to some of the things that you've been focused on in terms of the possibility of a blue wave and what that means for financial services, for banking, for the sector overall, because the banking sector has had a really tough year in 2020, really has not bounced back. And you talk about some potential changes under a Biden administration, along with a Democratic Congress, uh, Senate and House. Talk to me a little bit about what those are and how that would impact the sector and how that might ultimately have an impact on the market and stocks for these banks. Sure. So I think that uh, Democrats, uh, particularly if there is a blue wave, the Senate goes Democratic and there's you know a two or three vote margin. Uh, for the Democrats, which I love that we all use this blue wave term now, by the way, it sounds so calming and and lovely. Blue wave. (laughs) 
Blue wave. You know, there's nothing. You know, everyone seems to like these these wave analogies, um, <laughs> but like it's suggesting a tsunami, and like tsunamis are not friendly. So. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's that's much less calming and fun. I think it really, it really is. Um, and like an actual little wave doesn't doesn't do anything. I mean, it yeah. crashes in on the beach. Exactly. But. You know, whether we want to call it a, a wave, a riptide, a tsunami. I think we uh, should call it a tsunami because a tsunami is much like, I feel like it's one of those, um, what's that thing where the people blow into like, a blue wave is coming. That's that's what I get when I hear blue wave, but that's not what this would be, especially for the banking sector. So I'm sorry, Jared, please go on. No, no. You see, we are turning this into a TikTok. Great. <laughs> that's my goal. That's what so, I do here. So I guess, you know, the way we think about this is, uh, you know, with a couple of vote margin in the Senate, there's a lot that Democrats can try to do to really go after both how financial products are accessed and how they're priced. And I think, you know, from its most broad sense, the unifying theme for progressive Democrats is that they want to flatten pricing. And so they want wealthier customers to really be subsidizing less wealthy people who are accessing financial services. They want the government to be providing more financial services, whether that's credit reports or credit scores or even transactional accounts uh, at the post office or at the Federal Reserve so that you don't need a bank account. And so, you know, I think when, when we think about this trend, uh, you know, it is certainly, if taken to an extreme, would be alarming. Um, but at the same time, if it's more at the margins, then all you're doing is you're going to bring more people into the financial system. And long term, that's probably a positive. Mm. But one thing that you talk about uh, in your reporting is... Like you said, you talked about getting a lot of those, the wealthier clients to pay for the less wealthy clients and getting financial services to a more kind of quote unquote fair stance. And I would think, I mean, the reason that banks do it this way, the reason that they they align their services to benefit their wealthier customers is because they make more money that way and they need to sort of extract rents from poorer customers in order to make money on that side of the house. So when you flip that narrative, doesn't that hurt you or hurt the banks specifically on both sides? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the risk here is that if the banks are forced to subsidize services to less wealthy customers, that there'll be new entrants that pop up and try to cater to those wealthier customers and pull those customers out of the banking system. That's the number one risk from this strategy. And, you know, that's where the Fair Lending, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, um, and some of these other laws comes into effect, because the only way that this could work would be is if the Democrats follow it up with some tough enforcement against entities that are not trying to serve uh, the entire customer base. So can you talk a little bit about, a little bit more about what you mean by that? Sure. So, um, you know, particularly for, for banks, but even more broadly, 
to other financial firms, uh, you know, you're not allowed to uh, discriminate. And there is a legal theory that has been um, discontinued to an extent during the Trump administration, but which Democrats were pushing during Obama's years, known as disparate impact. And disparate impact says that you can have a policy that may be neutral on its face, but it ends up having a disparate impact on uh, a protected group, so uh, minorities um, you know, gen- in general. And those kinds of lawsuits um, you know, could really be used against financial firms if they tried to pull back from the lower end of the market, because for um, you know, better or worse, and really worse, uh, you know, the, the economic trends in this country suggest that more minorities are lower income. And so if you have a policy that uh, discriminates against lower income people, it's going to impact more minorities. And that could run afoul of the disparate impact. Right. And so that's that's then my question. Then don't the banks really put aren't the banks then put in a really tough position because their stocks have not rebounded as much as the rest of the market this year. Uh, Banking stocks have been really weighed down in general. And then if you get this blue wave, I would think that starts to really eat into those profit margins. Sure. But I mean, you're you're assuming that banks make all their money off of consumers. And the well, I'm also thinking table, that, the, no, sorry, Jared, I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was I was going to say I was also thinking that giving that preferential treatment to the other wealthier clients is also beneficial to the bank. And as we've got, you know, the shadow banking sphere out there and all these options in terms of not just shadow bank. Well, I guess shadow banking and fintech are kind of one and the same, but there are a lot of options for wealthy people right now in terms of, you know, banking services. Uh, so there certainly are options for wealthier people to try to access the financial system. But I think a lot of the fintech startups um, have not really been focused on the wealthy, and they've more uh, been focused on uh, people who have been either shut out of the financial system, uh, people who are uh, don't have as easy access to the banking system. Uh, you know, if if you're somebody who's wealthy, you just have no problems accessing a bank. <laughs> and and so I, I just have a hard time believing that, uh, you know, if you're, if, if some of those benefits are relaxed, that somehow or another you're going to look to take your money out of uh, the banking system. But but let's just assume you're right, and let's assume that um, you know these consumer banking businesses become a bit less profitable uh, for the banks under a, a blue wave scenario or a blue tsunami. Um, there we go, blue tsunami, baby. I love it. So you know, let's say let's say that's you know the the upside of that tsunami though could be that the business environment becomes more stable and more predictable. And that helps these uh, on the commercial lending side. Uh, you know, we would expect a much larger recovery and stimulus bill uh, uh, to deal with COVID-19 in our blue tsunami scenario. 
And all of that, uh, you know, is, is really beneficial to the banks, particularly a lot of these small banks where consumer lending is secondary and where business lending is, you know, the bread and butter of the, of the sector. Right. All right. So I want to get into something that I think the market will care about, and that is the fate of Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell. Uh, you've also got a number of, well, I guess a couple Fed, um, gov- Fed governors who, whose terms will end pretty quickly after this November election. Um, as you look at it, what is the risk of Jerome Powell not returning as Fed chair? I think it was a foregone conclusion, maybe six months to a year ago that he would not be back. That seems much less a foregone conclusion. I wrote a, a story last week saying, uh, you know, if there's an MVP of Trump's reelection campaign, it is Jerome Powell. But as you see it, looking at the likelihood of Jerome Powell getting another term under Biden and Trump, can you just talk about those two scenarios? Sure. I mean, if if Washington was fair, then we wouldn't be having this conversation because <laughs> we wouldn't be having a lot of guards. He deserves another term. He he isn't just the hero of Trump's reelection. He should be deemed the hero of you know the economy. Uh, oh, you wow. know, he has done more than any other Fed chairman in history to um, expand the central bank's role and to try to keep this COVID nineteen crisis from becoming a second Great Depression. Um, however, I don't think he gets a second term. And I don't think he gets a second term if Donald Trump wins, and I don't think he gets a second term if Joe Biden wins. Hmm, Talk about that. So, uh, you know, I think Trump values loyalty, and I don't think he trusts Powell to be sufficiently loyal to Trump personally. Mm. And, you know, I give Powell credit for that. I mean, Powell is an independent central banker, and I think that gives him a lot of credibility. Um, but that probably dooms him to a, a single term if Trump is is reelected. We would expect the president would want to put in a political ally in that job. Right. And, you know, there's plenty of possibilities out there. Well, we'll certainly have to see what happens, whether it's Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, uh, whether it's Larry Kudlow on the National Economic Council. Oh, my God. Uh, Judy Shelton, <laughs> if she gets Wait, the term. Can, we, can, yeah. we, can we stop? Can we take a step back there? Yeah. Uh, Kudlow? Kudlow is Fed chair? I mean, come on. Between <laughs> you and me and everyone listening, what would be more fun? I mean, come on, wouldn't that be great? Would that be fun? Is that is that the that's the word you'd use? Oh, I mean, come on. We gotta if if we can't just step back every now and then and say, okay, you know, what would who who could Trump pick that's in his universe that is somebody that you know could actually want the job, um, and that would be really amusing for the rest of us to follow. I mean, you know, <laughs> is at the top of that list. Um, really quickly, though, actually, serious question for you, because if we do get President Trump and we get a, a blue wave or we get, you know, Democrats take the Senate, um, does that endanger Trump 
getting another pick. I mean, how would he navigate that, getting so, his Fed so, pick through the Senate? I mean, really what you're talking about is the, you know, Jerome Powell is Trump's best option scenario. And, I mean, is, is that it? You know, yeah, and, and that may very well end up being what happens if Trump is reelected, but the Senate goes Democratic. You know, in our scenarios, that's one of the lesser likely outcomes. You know, in general, we think whoever wins the White House is going to control the Senate. Uh, So, yes, I I think that's probably how Powell could keep the job. It just doesn't seem like the more likely of the election outcomes. Got it. And in your scenario, if Trump wins, Republicans keep the Senate, do you think he can he can confirm a guy like Larry Kudlow or, you know, Judy Shelton's nomination is still being held up and she's just, you know, trying to be a governor. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that is the problem with almost anyone that Trump would really want in that job is that the task of confirming a political ally for what since Jimmy Carter's tenure since Paul Volcker was, you know, first confirmed, has been a very independent, apolitical position. Um, you know, I, I think that's a big challenge. But what we've seen repeatedly is that when Trump really wants something, uh, the Republicans in the Senate generally relent. And I think that if he wants to get a political ally into that job, he will be able to use the bully pulpit like no other president before him to cajole pressure and force Republican senators to get on board. You know who I would I would love to see in the Fed chair role? Ivanka Trump. I think Ivanka would make a great Fed chair. <laughs> she... I and I think she'd be much better than Larry Kudlow personally. I so I'd love to see that. That's a that's a nomination I could get behind. Uh, um, I, on the others, I don't. If you want to touch that, go ahead. I, I don't. You know. I think I'm gonna let that be 100 <laughs> percent your suggestion. <laughs> uh, they can create a separate TikTok video on that. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll, I'll we'll we'll move on. Uh, a Biden win. Who do you think he puts in there? I've been saying that um, there are these headlines that Janet Yellen's been helping his campaign. And I just think it it's a quid pro quo that she helps the campaign. And then if he wins, she's back in a Fed chair. But what's your thought? Listen, Yellen has had a, several stints at the Federal Reserve, including at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. She's extraordinarily qualified. But I don't know why she would want to go back into the Fed at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I would be a, a little surprised if if that happened. Um, that said, there are you know dozens of um, Democrats out there who have both the scholastic and political ties uh, to get it, mm-hmm. and you know I suspect. They have a long time, you know, they have a good nine, 10 months before they need to come up with a name. Right. And so I, I think almost everybody's still in play. The other the other name that I have been hearing is Lael Brainerd. What would you think about a Lael Brainerd Fed chair? So she is sort of the um, 
she's she's at the top of everybody's current list because she is the most obvious choice. Um, you know, she has dissented on a number of the more recent regulatory moves by the Fed trying to signal a policy shift from uh, the Trump team. Uh, and I think she would probably be quite good at the job. Um, she's also, though, a top contender to be Treasury Secretary. Right. That's the and other option. So, you know, you'd have to see whether or not she's she gets that post first. You know, there's other people vying to be Treasury Secretary. Our top pick is Roger Ferguson, former Fed vice chair. Um, he's at TIA Cref. Uh, I I think he's um, you know also a, a leading contender for Treasury. So if Ferguson gets Treasury, then I think Brainerd becomes the uh, you know, top candidate to be yeah. Fed chair. And do do markets like a Fed chair Brainerd? So I think the market in general um, doesn't seem to be worried about inflation at all right now. And they'd be much more comfortable with a Fed chair where it's clear they're not going to pull the punch bowl away too too early than if you put a more much more conservative economist uh in there who is more concerned about trying to get out ahead of inflation um you know the fed has changed its its view of how it looks at inflation and how that influences interest rate hikes and I think Brainerd is completely consistent with that new approach. Right, right. Absolutely. I, I don't know that there's anyone that I've heard about in the conversation that markets wouldn't like, which I think is a very interesting scenario because I remember when Trump was first looking to potentially replace Fed Chair Janet Yellen and you know it was like, oh, if it's this guy, the markets goes down and and Trump is tweeting, oh, he's meeting with that guy, and the market would go up. And I was I was on the uh, the Treasury's desk at that point at Reuters, and it made my life hell. And I never want to do it again. And I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. The last question I want to ask you though is about the possibility for a central bank digital currency. Uh, we got news last week that uh, ECB. Uh, President Christine Lagarde has uh, kind of pushed through this report on a digital euro. That means they're kind of taking another step. China is supposed to have one of these out. You know, they've been supposed to have issued a central bank digital currency, I think, since sometime last year. They keep saying they're going to do it. They're testing it out. But they appear to be well ahead of us. Uh, I believe it's um, Finland is also well ahead, but can you just talk about the likelihood for central bank digital currency and does that change under a Biden regime versus a Trump regime or how do you see that? All right. Well, I'm impressed because you were able to relate it back to the election. Uh, I didn't think that was going to be possible. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. All credit to you. Um, What I would say is that a central bank digital currency for the U.S. dollar is inevitable and it is not dependent upon whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump. 
it it is going to happen because there are processing advantages to having a digital currency when you um, transact with a digital currency you can send not just payment but also instructions and so for many forms of international trade and international payments um, it's advantageous i think central banks don't want uh, the bitcoins of the world to dominate this space They'd rather uh, retain their own jurisdiction and authority uh, by having central bank issued digital currencies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, but we're I guess, headed there no matter what. I guess the question I would ask though was would be is it is it accelerated under a President Biden? Does President Biden, uh, you know? light a fire under the Fed to get this done? Or does President Trump light a fire because of Congress or not Congress, but because of China's uh, accelerated pace on this matter? So I think um, they've already turned the uh, amplifier to 11. You know, I think that- Oh, wow. You brought Spinal Tap into this. When in doubt, always go back (laughs) to Spinal Tap. Um, You know, it just seems like- it, this has already become a priority within the Fed. And, you know, the Fed is worried about its own control over the money supply and in the role of the U.S. dollar. And I don't think you need to see uh, a president lighting a fire under the Fed because I think that fire has already been ignited. Okay. All right. So we are we're already moving there. Last question. I mean, it's not going to matter for you and me uh, per se. You know, I don't know how much in the next 10 years that, you know, we that the average person would ever be using a U.S. dollar digital currency. But it certainly will uh, impact business payments, uh, you know, I think sooner than people are realizing. And sooner than people are realizing, meaning what? Uh, you know, I mean, right now their their plan is the next couple of years to have um, a, a, a kind of viable uh, digital dollar out there. You know, realistically, it's probably at least five years before it becomes something that is workable. Uh, but but we'll see. I mean, this market is moving insanely fast. If we were to have had this conversation even, you know, 24 months ago, you know, I'm not sure we would have been as optimistic that there'd be a, you know, digital dollar or digital euro. And so, you know, as as these markets continue to evolve at, at you know, warp speed, the rollout is going to have to, to come faster. And I think that's understood at the Fed. I think that's understood in Europe. Um, and that's why we're seeing these efforts. Gotcha. Jarrett Seberg, thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Let's do it again. All right. That does it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jarrett Seberg, financial services and housing policy analyst for Cowan Washington Research Group. As always, this episode was produced by Mike Teich.